Ladies and gentlemen, the Britpack United Nations is back. Simon Head from Rochester in the UK, gorgeous George and Goes, and Richard Hunter all in the building, or the virtual building at least, for the latest roundtable chat on all things MMA, sports, pop culture, whatever whatever else we want to bring to the table this week. But uh, first off, lads, it's been a couple of weeks. How's, how's things been? George, how's it been for you, mate? I had the Rona, and I'm, sh- I'm shaking it off. Couple negative tests later, feeling pretty good. Uh, but that was kind of like my big deal. Avoided it for over two two years, and then it finally got me. Goes you safe? You staying away from him, or you, have you have you been uh, isolated out of his way? I gave him the room. <laughs> so yeah, we're just now getting over it. Richard, how's it been? I somehow have stayed away from uh, contracting this dreaded disease. Um, to to my knowledge, I mean, I think I would have I would have known, but then I'm double vaxxed and boosted and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But I tell you, just uh, a couple of days ago, I went out to eat, and uh, you know, we're Jennifer and I are masked up right up until the actual point where we got to put food in our mouth and we're the only people around doing it. Not saying that the guys weren't, but it's like, I, that's just a new way for me, man. I'm happy to be behind that mask when I'm around a bunch of dirty strangers. Speaking of dirty strangers, it's, it's, it's good to have everybody back on the podcast this week. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but, um, we had a big, big event at the weekend and it was a weird one, right? Cause normally these big pay-per-views they're in your backyard, they're in Vegas or at the very least they're on your time zone, um, in, in, in the States somewhere. This one was Singapore. They helpfully managed to hold it still on the U S time zone, but it was on the other side of the world in possibly the most expensive place in the world. You could hold and hold a sporting event. Singapore is insanely expensive, especially if you like a cold beer, but, um, it was a big event, a big event and some incredible fights. I know you've probably broken down some of these fights already on your respective shows since then, but I just want to ask about that main event, Prohaska versus Teixeira. I watched it back like the day after because I didn't want to just knee jerk into a, that's the best light heavyweight title fight I've ever seen because obviously we've got John Jones and Gustafsson, right? I watched it back. I think it is. I think it's better than that fight. I think it's more entertaining, scrappier, more errors, not as technically sound, but as an entertainment product, as a fight, as an all-round slobber knocker, that for me was a number one light heavyweight title fight in UFC history. What say you, George? You agree with that, or do you think it's Gus versus Jones still? No, I think. Well, it depends on what. Like, if you were to go, what's the most entertaining title fight in the light heavyweight division you've ever seen? I think I would say Glover versus Prochaska. If you were to say what's the best, like from a technical side, I can tell maybe you're a hardcore fan and you're looking to talk techniques and stuff like that, then I would probably lean towards Jones and Gustafson. Goes had said on Spinning Backclick on MMA Junkie that part of what made Jones versus Gustafson so interesting was that Jones was basically unbeatable right and so now you have some guy taking it to him winning the early rounds winning the early part of the championship rounds that he wound up losing that made the difference so you were kind of almost on the edge of your seat because of that that's what made it so compelling 
at the same time, beautiful techniques. And then, and then you got the GOAT involved in, in that one, you know, John Jones. So he digs deep, wins the fight, and he was pushed to his limits. Great stuff. And then in the other one, slobber knocker, perfect word. You know, we were jumping around from Hootenanny to slobber knocker to brain buster, whatever. But guess what? That can be entertaining too, you know? And there's a reason why NASCAR, they'll show you who won. They're waving that checkered flag and somebody's drinking milk or whatever, but then they'll show you a couple of collisions too, right? Because they know the audience wants that. And so it had that. We had some of those collisions. The fight went back and forth, but I, I'm attracted to some of that sloppiness. So it just depends on what what angle we're covering. I think they both will be in the Hall of Fame. Jones is Gustafson's already in the Hall of Fame. I think the other one will eventually, probably like 2028 20, or something like that. We got a few others to get to. And if somebody says, nope, I'm sticking to Jones versus Gustafson, guess what? I'm not going to push them. It's not worth it. it. They're so close, it's just a matter of opinion. What do you reckon, Richard? Are you more of a a purist who wants to see like the highest level of application or do you just want to see two guys going in there and tearing it up Stefan Bonner, Forrest Griffin style and just delivering a, a, an exciting fight? You know, I, I think I could be either. I think what I would end up making as my main criteria to answer this question would be, the 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 number of moments or the amount of collective time that I felt like I was really on the edge of my seat. And I would have to give the nod where that's concerned to this past weekend. And here's why. The number of reversals, the number of reversals of position. How many times in this fight did we see somebody just get wailed on and all of a sudden they take the, the other guys back? Like we saw that back and forth, back and forth. And even the finish, the finish was like somebody left their neck exposed for a second. Like in a way it was kind of, I mean, I, my first inclination to that finish was almost, was that anticlimactic? And then I was like, no, actually it wasn't because it was just that, that finish could have happened at a lot of other points right and it just for that second the gas tank is empty whatever like you said not a a a real technically proficient moment but it it felt like a fight that could have been over virtually at any second it felt like a fight that just when it looked like somebody was about to finish the fight all of a sudden that person got reversed that happened more times than i can count i just remember thinking that over and over and over again in that fight so uh for those reasons uh that i gotta put that at the top of my list what about you guys it's at the top of my list i I felt like you i felt the night of i felt like it was but i thought maybe i'm overreacting i've actually gotten a lot of pushback man from spinning back click um you gotta remember henderson and shogun was a pretty good one as well yeah yeah. Uh, oh, oh, why? Well, I, I thought we specified title fight, though. Yeah, it was a title fight. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, mm. yeah. So, um, no, don't get me wrong. That was a great fight. If we're just talking about light heavyweight, someone has the the right to bring that up. But if we're just mm-hmm. talking about title fights, and then they can't they can't bring that up to you because you're making the argument for title fights. I think, right? Well, where I think this fight stood out is one one thing that Richard said was. It was just there was so much back and forth within the rounds, right? So in John Jones and Gustafson, it just felt like 
we kind of knew what each guy did each round. And at the end, it was the judges that told us who won that fight. These two guys took it upon themselves to give us as much chaos as they could until the very end. And then one of them decided who won that fight. And it just so happens that the guy won, you know, uh, Yuri Prakasha won that fight using what the other guy is better at, right? Like going in, when would you ever thought Glover would sit there and stand in the pocket and trade with him? When would you even think that Yuri, because that wasn't the first time, would try and take that fight to the ground and try and pull off submissions. Like they were both doing things that we just weren't expecting. Yeah. Everything that happened in Jones Gustafson, we kind of expected both guys to do that. <coughs> I don't even think it really hit the ground. This was all over the place, man. And, uh, you know, there was blood. There was everything. And it ended with with definition, you know, with a submission. Um, I, I just, I think it holds up, dude. I think it was the best fight. Yeah. I mean, the, the funny thing about that fight was, obviously I watched it as it happened. And it's it's a thrilling fight to watch live. But watching it back was kind of surreal because I'm watching the final round. I'm watching the final round unfold. And I'm watching the clock. And I'm thinking, how does Glover lose the fight from here? How does he lose yeah. from this position? Like he hit him with a right hand and almost knocked him out. And for reasons I, I think he's probably asking himself, to be honest, he then went to try and take him down. Um, and it made little sense at the time, other than to kill the clock, right? And just use up the clock. And he had top position. He was he mounted him. And I'm like, Glover Teixeira is a, is a, is a big lump. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Knows his way around the mat, and he's against a, an absolutely knackered Yuri Prohaska, who has never fought past two rounds in his life. He's got him deep in in, in the uh, he's, he's in the deepest water possible at the end of the fifth round of a title fight, and he's been absolutely hammering him with heavy shots. And he's he's got him mounted. I'm looking at the clock, and I'm thinking, how does he lose from here? How does how how does Yuri win it from here? And how the hell does Glover lose it from here? And you just watch it back and. I think it's one of those fights where if he hasn't done it already, when Glover eventually does sit down and watch that fight back, he he's, he's going to be absolutely kicking himself because that fight was his. I think he was winning it on the cards and mm -hmm. he was, yeah, he would have won the three one. There you go. Um, and he was winning that round. He was definitely winning that round. So, and for it to go the way it went was, was remarkable. I'll, before we move on from that, the other big question from that fight is, do you do the rematch? And I've heard arguments for and against, right? The argument against is we pretty much know that Glover Teixeira maybe has one, maximum two fights left before he decides to hang him up, right? We know that he wanted to win. He wanted to win that title fight, defend it again at Madison Square Garden, and maybe put the gloves down at MSG and retire. That would be like the fairy tale ending to his career. He just lost his title. But in an incredible title fight, I'm not a big fan of just booking instant rematches. It's, it's become a little bit, a little bit too too common, I think, in the UFC. But that fight was so good, and you know that Glover's only got one, maybe two fights left. If you want to see that again, you've got to rebook it now. So uh, I would I would do the rematch. The other argument against it is if Glover goes and beats Prohaska in the rematch at MSG, puts the belt on his shoulder, world champion, got my belt back, and then says. Thank you very much. I'm done. Puts the puts the gloves down. Does a GSP for, for you know for want of a better phrase. That's not great for the UFC. Then you've got a vacant belt. The guy who's just lost is probably still the number one contender. And you've got a bit of a messy championship picture. You've got to kind of you, you've got to kind of pick up again. 
So if you're the UFC, that's probably the argument against it. I would do the rematch. Would you guys do the rematch? Guys, would you book the rematch? Absolutely, 100%. A lot of things have to play in. The fact that he, you know, his age is a big factor. Not just that, but look at the damage he takes in every fight, even when he wins. If you risk even giving him another fight, you have no idea at this age what one of these battles, like it's a car wreck every single time. The next one might be enough for him to say, nah, I just don't want to do this again, even if he wins. And why would you risk never giving us this rematch? Like it, it just seems like something we have to see. Um, it just so happens that it's one of those situations where, yeah, you know, maybe the, the next guy in line deserves it. But I mean, when has the UFC really cared about doing that? And uh, I think now is the time to strike for that. You definitely have to do it. What about you, Richard? Would you book the rematch yeah. or do you think they should move on and, and get new blood in there? I would do it for a couple of reasons. Um, in addition to what's already been mentioned. One, doing a rematch would be, I think this would be an actual opportunity for Glover Teixeira to draw big as the the headliner on a on a pay-per-view. I mean, I realized that was the idea this past Saturday night, but as marquee names and marquee matchups go, this wasn't one of the bigger ones we'd ever seen just in print. It came to life in front of us. So this would be an opportunity for him to go out, uh, if he did go out after one more fight, to go out with um, you know the, the, the biggest drawing power of his career on on the back of of this first fight the second thing is um for yuri it's it's an opportunity to crazy as it sounds still elevate him as a name i realize this was the big coming out but i think that there's a lot of people who maybe don't follow it as closely as we do that are going to be going wait who's the light heavyweight champion now what did i miss because they may have uh, they may have passed on on this one, so this is an opportunity for those two guys to come in now with a history behind them and a history of of one of if not the most exciting title fight in the division's history. So no matter what happens, there can be a lot of winners here. If Glover wins the title back and he retires uh, in that moment, he goes out literally on top and also. Uh, as at the, the the peak of his drawing power, if Yuri makes it two and O, now I think that really solidifies him uh, as a guy who not only beat the champ but rematched him and and retired him. If that's the way that plays out, and then he's elevated to a much greater level. So either way, I think the UFC has more to gain either by making Yuri's um, presence even greater with a second win or getting one of those very rare storybook finishes like you're talking about with Glover uh, and drawing a lot of money in the process. Like you said, not leaving uh, a rematch like this on the table. And, you know, there's there's plenty of time. We can we can we can go another three months, four months five months, whatever it is, uh, without any more movement in the light heavyweight division. It'll still be there uh, once we're done with that rematch. Yeah. And if if, if, if we're of the view that Yuri Prohaska is going to be in the next title fight, win, lose, or draw, 
then does it yeah. matter if it's for a vacant title or not? You know? So yeah. I don't know. What do you think, George? And, and what do you think the UFC will do? Okay, I just want to throw out one last thing about the last topic we were discussing. Just a fun fact. Glover had never been submitted, and Yuri had never submitted anyone. So how crazy was that? Just to put a little cherry on everything we discussed. Yeah. As far as this deal is, I hear what goes to saying. I'll slightly push back. Just because they go with Blahovich versus Yuri doesn't mean Glover has to take another fight, which would risk him possibly getting hurt or any more delay or even taking the loss. You could just have Glover sit. Glover, man, he... he He's been in his wins. He's gotten knocked around. This fight's going to be difficult for him to recover from. And with Yuri having not fought in a year, because the last time he fought was a year ago before this one, I imagine he might want to get going sooner. He's 29, so he could probably turn it around and, and fight maybe in Abu Dhabi or something versus Jan. I would let them do that and pretty much just tell Glover, you got the winner. If Jan wins, Jan wants to fight you because you took the title from him. If Yuri wins, then we got we preserve this this fight that uh, we just discussed right now. But more than anything, it has to do with I just don't want Glover to fight till either December 29th or 31st or whatever, or just turn the page. Let's fight in, in January. And I think going back to what you said, what do you think the UFC wants to do? The UFC wants these guys to fight as soon as possible. So I'm think they'll they'll want to get Yuri in there quicker. Now, if Glover says, "Hey, I can go. I can turn it around." Let's just run the rematch. I'm all in, guys. I'm all in. That was a great fight. I wouldn't have watched it again. But, like I said, uh, you have to involve the rest of the division. Otherwise, it can become stagnant. Is that me, guys, messing things up with audio or something? I think it was Richard. I didn't Richard. Oh, okay. Um, look at Flyweight. Flyweight went away. Then it came back. And... Just when you think it could get going, we get four straight Figueredo Marino fights. Luckily, Figueredo can't go, and so now we're going to get Kai Car of France versus Brandon Marino to break things off. But why would you do that when you have Askarov, when you have Kai Car of France, when you have um, what's your kid Pantoja who's beaten Marino? Like they still keep shoving that other matchup down our throats. I don't want that to become. Yuri Prochaska versus Glover Teixeira. If it's a classic and Teixeira wins, you don't think they're going to throw the, the rubber match on us? And at that point, you know, Rakic will be back, Ankaliyev, Jamal Jamal Hill. I mean, there, there's there's other bodies. Vlahovic, Dominic Reyes, if he wins, you know, there's other people you have to keep excited, you know, in this division as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot going on at 205 pounds. I remember it wasn't all that long ago. People were saying that 205 was a little bit, a little bit, stale and uh we've now got this this crop of fighters coming up now and and it's an exciting division now the co-main event on saturday valentina shevchenko defeated taylor santos by split decision there's been a lot of talk about the scoring i don't want to go into the, the whole scoring conversation we i think that's been done ad infinitum almost you know every, everyone's com complaining about scoring it's not about scoring it's about how you interpret the scoring criteria and different judges see things differently that's just how it is that was a close fight the question i want to ask you guys is who should valentina shevchenko be fighting next i'm going to give you three options right if you've got one that isn't one of those three options then fine chuck that in the mix does she rematch taylor santos does she face zhang Wei Li? In a super fight, 
Or does she face Misha Tate if she gets past Lauren Murphy in her upcoming flyweight fight? What what is the matchup next for Valentina Shevchenko? You have to choose one of those three, unless you've got a better one. Unless you've got a better one, but there for me, looking at it, I think they're the three main options on the table because they're not going to book Caitlin Chikagian again, uh, even though she's number one contender. So, um, so who's who? Who should it be, and who do you think it will be? Goes. I'll let you. I'll let you kick off. Well. If you if Zhang Wei Li can defeat um, Carlos Barza, then I think you this is might be the one chance you try and chase for gold to really cement that legacy amongst all the other women. Um, I would do that, but you also have to keep an eye on Amanda and uh, Juliana Pena because you got to win over Juliana Pena, and if Juliana Pena could somehow get another win over Valentina, then I think you go back up one thirty five and take that belt as well. What about you, George? Well, the first thing I would do today is June 16th. Pena and, and, and uh, Nunes fight on July 30th. I wait to see that outcome. If Juliana Pena beats Amanda Nunes, she's 2-0 against Nunes. Nunes is 2-0 against Shoshenko. Shoshenko would then have an opportunity to move up to Bantamweight and go 2-0 against Pena. Therefore, what you have is a round robin, and now that shadow that casts over Valentina and why she could never be the GOAT because she's 0-2 against Nunez, it now becomes a round robin where, yeah, you may have gotten me, but I got the girl twice that got you twice. And right now I'm actively wearing a belt. You're not, unless we count 145, which is, you know, it's 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 not really, it doesn't have much life in it. But I listened to the post-fight press conference in Singapore, and a media member asked her about straw weight. And she basically answered it how she's answered it before on Junkie Radio. And that's, I'm not against it, but I'm definitely just not looking forward to that weight cut. And here's what she said. When she fought against Talia Santos, she was 130. So she weighed in at 125, only rehydrated to 130. She's told me she walks around at 133. And Talia Santos weighed in at 125, and she thinks that Talia Santos was at least 140. So she felt that difference. That said, we're not. Luckily, we're not talking about someone that you know rehydrated to 145 or something. And now we're talking about how you're going to get down to 115. You look at Valentina; she's pretty damn shredded. But guys, Edson Barbosa, I've never seen anyone more shredded than him at 55, and somehow he'd make 45. Jose Aldo's pretty shredded at 45, and he made 35. So I'm of the opinion that Valentina could probably do it one time, chase history, get Strawway done. And that way, if she won that fight and had that title, flyweight title, and then if the thing works out with Pena, that's really, really gangster, guys, to have three titles, you know, on your resume. And, you know, like I say, I I think she can pull it off. So first things first, enjoy your time. She's in Kyrgyzstan right now. Watch what happens between Pena and Nunes. If Nunes wins, then you're you're back in the boat where you have to campaign against someone that you owe into against. And maybe the UFC does it, maybe they don't. I don't know. But her best bet is for Pena to win. What about you, Richard? Yeah, so... <clears throat> all right, so let's see. Sort of process of elimination here. Um, <clears throat> I do think, in a weird way, I want to see Jean uh, Lee uh, and uh, Carla Esparza. Uh, let's 
I, I'm thinking the 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 belt goes uh, on to Whaley at that point. Yeah, I saw somebody say the other day. I don't remember who it was, but they were like, "Could could John Whaley going into a fight with Carla Esparza be the biggest odds-on favorite as a challenger in title history?" Uh, maybe I'd have to look that up, but it would definitely be at or near the top. So I want to see that done first. Uh, I do think that for Shevchenko, the Nunez riddle does kind of still hang around. Uh, so like George just said, wait and see what happens with Nunez and, uh, and Pena. It might be the time, you know, if, if Dana's right and uh, Nunez, you know, has a lot more on her mind than she used to besides fighting, then maybe this is the time to catch her, even though she is 0-2 against her, uh, to, to eventually uh, take her on. So I think the way that Shevchenko ultimately overcomes the, the, the obstacle on the way to GOAT status because of the two losses to to Pena is to maybe make a run at those three belts. And then like, like George says, round Robin, you know, even if she still ultimately couldn't get past Pena, if she can somehow accomplish two of those legs, she might have an argument at least to be on par with Amanda Nunez, uh, having held two belts and two divisions and seeing where things end up with Nunez. I don't know if that's a specific answer, but I think I took uh, John Wei Lee off the table for that super fight. I mean, I like the idea of eventually doing the super fight, but uh, getting the belt on her first, getting the belt on John Wei Lee, and then uh, ultimately, I think it'd be great to see those two fight too. But as as dual champs, yeah, I don't know if we'll ever see Shevchenko Nunes three. I've just got a feeling that that's going to be one of those lost fights that we just don't get. Nunez is just so much bigger than than Shevchenko these days. Yeah. Now she's fighting 45. Um, you know, I think, you know, we talked about the difference with, with, with Tyler Santos and the fact that she was noticeably bigger than 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 Shevchenko on fight night. Amanda Nunez is much bigger than 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 Tyler Santos. So yeah, I don't know if we'll see that, but the Juliana Pena fight would be very interesting, I think. If 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 Juliana holds onto that belt and beats Nunez twice then that would be a, a fantastic fight. The fight I want to see, though, is the Zhang Weili fight. I think that's, yeah. to me, that's the one that really appeals to me. Two fast, technical, powerful athletes who are good everywhere. I, I would really like to see that. Um, At what weight? Because right now, Zhang Weili isn't a champion. 25. So are you saying if she beats Carla, or you want to negotiate a, a weight in between? Like one twenty. I would I would want to see that fight at one twenty five. I would I'm I think Zhang Wei Li will win the strawweight title and I would like her to step straight up and go for two belts. Because can you imagine yeah. if you're the UFC having a Chinese champion with two 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 belts, like you know, she's already a superstar and, and someone that the UFC can really hang their hat on in Asia. But even more so if she's a two belt champion. Um and uh, you know they can they can do more events in that in that part of the world. They've got two divisions to to sort of service. But unlike the Amanda Nunes situation, as was where she was the, she was the bantamweight and featherweight champion, but basically she had one division to deal with because there isn't there there isn't a featherweight division, right? Zhang Wei Li has got a stacked strawweight division, 
and a pretty competitive looking 125 pound division. So she's not going to be short of uh, contenders coming, coming sort of for, you know, for either one of the titles. So, um, and there's a nice, there's a nice mixture of matchups that you can make. So I would like to see Zhang Weili versus Valentina Shevchenko. That I think that that's a, that's a fight where I want, I want to see who is the better mixed martial artist in that fight. And I think it would make more sense for that fight to be at 125 pounds. Your three choices were John Wei Lee and what else? What were the other ones? I know some of us tangented off of those, but what were the three choices? Uh, I said uh, Tyler Santos rematch, given it was a split decision. Some people thought that that, that Santos won that fight. And the other one, and the reason I mentioned Misha was because I think Shevchenko has mentioned that herself. Yeah. Um, So she's already put that one out there. Um, To answer that one then, I would say if Misha beats Murphy... Sure, taking on the legend would be great for your profile, for your resume. And it doesn't seem forced because Misha will have beaten a top contender. She's coming in as a former champ who's looked good. I guess she'd be 2 and one at that point. And, um, but if she doesn't win, which we'll know soon, then I'm favoring Talia Santos because I'd rather have Zhang Weili fight Carla, and I don't want to wait for the answer to see what happens there before I tackle you know what? What what I want to do with Valentina? I think Val, I think we'll get a sooner answer with Pena and Nunez than we will because at least that's booked and ready to go. The other one isn't even close. I think Carla's still in Bora Bora <laughs> on, on honeymoon, so I'd probably lean towards Talia Santos. But you know what I would do is I take that fight to Brazil. I think Valentina's a world traveler. And she'd be open to it. She loves gaining new fans. I think Ronda became a bigger star when she beat Bech Correa in Brazil, and and then if Talia Santos wins, then good on Brazil to, to you know have a champion win it on their home soil. I think that would be big. And then now they'd be 1-1, and maybe Valentina could campaign for Eastern Europe or Peru or or back in the States. I don't know. So that, that, can, I just, can I just say something about the, the idea of the Santos rematch? Um, and I actually – I thought Santos won that fight. But that being said, that to me – was the kind of performance that it feels like, yes, those two should fight again, but Santos should probably fight once or twice away from that rematch and stay at the top of contention to really establish the fact that she's supposed to be there. I I don't mean that to sound, it sounds kind of cold and I don't really mean it to sound that way. It's just that sometimes in in my my matchmaking mind, when someone um, when someone puts on a like I think about like uh, like like John Jones and Santos, uh, you know, uh, or John Jones and Dominic Reyes, when those kind of efforts get put forth, it's like, whoa, okay, yeah, we probably ought to see those two guys fight again, but let's let's see them win once or twice more and just stay at a level of undeniable contention before we put him in that rematch. So I'm going to I'm going to break from what we were talking about with the light heavyweight division whereas I say that's an immediate rematch and with this one in Santos I I, I just want to see Santos go go win one or two more and then let's come back to talk about that. Yeah, I mean first thing she needs to do of course is heal up from that broken orbital that she sustained mm-hmm. in in that fight. So but yeah, if you're Valentina Shevchenko, you got options. And if you got options, then you're in a good spot. So uh She's got seven, seven rubies. Seven rubies. Yeah. Presumably if she gets an eighth, they need to give her a fresh new belt, right? Are there any spaces for eight? 
There's eight. There's room for eight. So yeah. then the next one would be a new belt, I guess. Yeah. Uh, plus, she would go past Amanda Nunez, who's at, who has a combined seven, five at Bantam, two at Feather. She would pass Hughes, who had two different title runs, but in it, he had a total of seven titles. Although he got shorted, man, by the Hoist Gracie having to fight him at 175. That definitely should have been a title. And and then Joe Riggs, I believe, this weight when he subbed for Carl Parisian. And that one should have been a title defense, but whatever. Um, at least one of the two. And then the other person with seven is Jose Aldo. So, you know, she would eclipse Jose Aldo. And think about in the high regard we have for Jose Aldo. So she's she would be in really elite company. Now she would be one less than GSP. They should yeah. just put a stripe on her belt. The way they do in jiu-jitsu. Just put a stripe on it. Yeah. Yeah, that would work. That would work. Right. UFC 275 was a good show, right? A lot of people are saying it is one of, if not the best show the UFC have done this year. I would argue that the London show, obviously I'm biased. Um, I was there. Um, I, for me, the London show was the best show this year. 275. Better than, was better than Singapore? Two, yeah, I think it was better than Singapore. because well, I think about the two title fights in London, Simon. Oh, there were no two title fights in London, but what there were were 18,000 screaming nutcases. Yeah, that go, that. Those nutcases will go crazy if there's fights. In the, if you just drag two guys from the stands, they'll go nuts. I mean, I'm giving you guys props because you guys are a passionate audience. But, man, I, I, the title fights were like those Those are – we're still talking about them. You know, like yeah, the other ones good. at a high level. I know. No, I, I, it's, it is a debate, right? I, I, think, I think that – the way the London show went and it was, it was very, very similar to that famous Dublin show, the Conor McGregor, Diego Brandau show where almost every Irish fighter won or every Irish trained fighter won. And it yeah. built up and built up to that crescendo in the main event. It was a bit like that in London. And uh, I thought the whole package of the event, if I can describe it as such, the fights delivered, we had fighters who, we're sort of coming of age, if you like, in, in, in the octagon. People who we knew were capable of great things but hadn't delivered it yet, they mm. delivered. Breakthrough moments all over the place, spectacular knockouts, great finishes. Paul Craig coming back from the dead in the first round to do what he always seems to do, slapping the triangle on Krilov. We had Mohamed Makayev on his debut. Brilliant first fight of the night. The whole package, and then that served up in that atmosphere. For me... That was the best event of the year, but this—if if that was one A, what we had at the weekend was one B. They're—they're—they're they're, they're right there, right? Very different. You're comparing apples with oranges a little bit because this was a pay per view this past weekend, and what we had in London was a fight night. But um, but yeah, at the moment we're being royally treated to some incredible events, and the next big pay per view is going to be at the end of this month, beginning of the next month, I think July second, UFC two seventy six. And I'm going to be in town for that one. And I want to talk to you not about that fight night. I want to talk to you about Vegas. All right. We're going to kind of go off the off topic a little bit. I'm coming to Vegas. Most of my week, I'm going to be off duty. I'm going to be doing bits and pieces, but I'm going to be off duty. So I need, I need to, I need to pick your brains as Las Vegas veterans of things I need to do, places I need to go, think places I need to eat and drink. What can you what can you recommend me over the course of uh, International Fight Week when I come over? Myself and Abby Saban, um, Who's that? U USA Today MMA junkie videographer extraordinaire. 
we're both making the trip over together um and uh we're going going to be there sunday to sunday so um we've got a fair amount of spare time on our hands so could do with some recommendations les what can you give me what do you want to start with oh okay well let's let's start with stuff to do during the day because it's normally so flipping hot that it's 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 not easy to do stuff during the day in Vegas in July, right? Cause it's right. Or late June. Cause it's so stinking hot. What should we be doing? Where should we be going? Hmm. Do you like shows like Vegas shows? What's yeah. Your depend, depend, depends what it is really. I'm not a big Celine Dion fan. If that's, if, if that's what you're asking me. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking more like Cirque du Soleil, that type of stuff. Okay. Yeah. What's, what's, what's recommended? What should we, what should we check out? Do not walk out of Vegas if you're going to see a Cirque du Soleil show without seeing either Beatles Love or Michael Jackson One. If you're a fan of either one, uh, I, I think you'll really, really dig it. But I think even like I wasn't the biggest Beatles fan. Sorry, the other half of this podcast. But I mean, I, I think they're great, but I wasn't like a huge fan. Um, but the entertainment, the music you'll completely love those. I would definitely do one of those shows for sure. Cool. What about you, George? What can you recommend? Well, I don't do too many shows, but you can never go wrong with Cirque just because of the athleticism of the performers. The Some are based off of like a, a musical legend or some sort of a theme. So you always get your money's worth there. There's, I believe... No, I'll have to check because I don't want to talk out of my ass. But give me the dates you're going to be here. There's going to be great comedy shows. There's always great comedians in town. I wanted to say Bill Burr, but then I go, nah, why am I going to talk out of my ass? I'd have to check it and see. But I, I know he's coming back pretty soon. And so that would probably be a fun night. Um, there's, if you just like to people watch, downtown's pretty fun because you can walk with your with your adult beverages. And just uh, watch. There's performers. There's zip lines. You can dip in and out and uh, of casinos. You know, if you want to gamble, and then you're you can wear shorts and a t-shirt. You know, you're not too worried about the strip, which sometimes can be. You get caught up more in like it's posh and it's more expensive, and so you know you feel like, oh, okay, I gotta really, really, you know, bring a couple of nice outfits so I don't stick out like a sore thumb or anything like that. Um, but like, like I say, casual viewing, that's what I would do. I would take in a pool for sure. If you have a chance. Um, and, uh, the pools here are, are just different. Like Mandalay Bay's, I always side with them. They have lazy river, they have a beach. So it's not just a bunch of just pools alone, you know, but, uh, it's always seen, you know, there's bachelorette parties, there's divorce parties. There's just cool tourists hanging out, having a good time. Um, there's great lounges where there's just lots of cover bands, you know, that, like I say, if, if, if you're on a, a smaller budget, you can still hear some good music, have some good drinks and all that. Now, as far as food goes, um, a good steakhouse, I like Vic and Anthony's at the Golden Nugget. I haven't been there in a while, but I like it because it's, they don't, something about Vegas, they know they got you by the balls. And so... It's ridiculous to me when a steak is like 120 or 140, but those places do it because people will pay it. What I've liked about Vic and Anthony's is they keep it reasonable. You know, it was 60 then, it's 60 now, or it's 65, 
but we're also just not going to like bat you around just because this is Vegas. And it's been just as delicious when as when I've gone to the other ones that are a little bit more expensive. That one's downtown. The strip steak at Mandalay Bay is pretty good as well. Italian food, I like Nora's off of Flamingo. I just love the, the rigatoni bolognese that they have there. It is awesome. Uh, and usually the portion's big enough that you can bring at least a third of it home, put it in your fridge, and now you got a snack for the next day. Um, if you like Mexican food, I like Diablo's inside the Luxor. Um, and then, you know, I guess you would have to tell me, well, I, I like this other type of cuisine. I could I could point you in the direction of something else, like Peruvian food, Toque de Sabor is right by UNLV, goes his alma mater. That's a great Peruvian restaurant. So you'll have to tell me what kind of food you like. I'll point you in the direction. You can't go wrong with Brazilian barbecue, Texas Day Brazil. And Brazilian at Extreme Couture are usually wide open. If you ever have any troubles, just let me know, and I can meet you down there, and we can catch a pro practice or whatever. Um, of course, if that's okay with you, hanging out with me, I don't know. But I know <laughs> As you know, I, I go out of my way to avoid you when I'm in Vegas, George. You, you, you do, man. I feel like a rodeo clan and you're the bull. But anyway, <laughs> all right. Uh, Richard's back. Richard, you want to add in? What is there any spots that you want to recommend in terms of like shows? Oh, or you want to make a pitch for the Haunted Museum? Sure. So, uh, yeah, you should come by the Haunted Museum uh, for sure. Take a tour. You'll be amazed at uh, what's inside. Uh, the weird, the strange, the macabre. Um, food recommendations? I got a great one. Uh, a new restaurant just opened inside the um, the Resorts World Casino uh, about two weeks ago called Crossroads. So this restaurant is, uh, is owned by Travis Barker from Blink-182 and now Mr. Courtney Kardashian, I think. Um, but this, he's had this restaurant in LA, uh, called Crossroads for years now. And it's one of my favorite restaurants to go to when I'm in LA. And they just opened this location here in Vegas two weeks ago. So Jennifer and I just went Tuesday night, top to bottom from appetizers to entrees to desserts, five-star dining. This is, uh, of course, a 100% plant-based restaurant as is my uh my my vegan way as so is travis barker he's a long time 100 percent. yeah but what? this place is like this is not just when you're just running out to get something to eat this is when you're going to sit down and have a serious five-star cuisine chef prepared uh meal top to bottom man this thing just absolutely blew our minds Awesome. And I know Goes has just pinged me on my WhatsApp three different Yelp lists of of, uh, of of food of food places, and I'm seeing pictures of burgers and steaks and God knows what else. I get asked so much that I just created these lists on Yelp, and now I, just, oh. and I separate them from A, yeah. B, and C. Then use that... the promo code GOES. Don't forget that. <laughs> the promo code GOES. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, the, the, you, the ABC, like is that exactly? What's huh? that again? Sorry. Did you like the movie Casino? You're gonna, you're gonna just shake your head at me. I've never seen it. <laughs> Look at the ghost face. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna out myself in a major way by trumping that with something else. 
Pride um, Month? I haven't seen the first Top Gun movie yet oh. either. Everyone's talking about Top Gun Maverick and how great it is. And I said to my wife, I said, I should probably watch the first one, really. And she just you know looked what? at me in horror. I said, you didn't see Star Wars until you met me. So you you, you can't say anything. So Don't, don't you know. go bad, Simon. I basically had the same Top Gun experience. I mean, I saw it. The first one, I don't remember a lot about it. And I, I had to go through that with the guys a week or so ago. But I'm, it's all right, man. You're okay. <laughs> I'm not bad with 80s movies. It's just that one that one slipped the net. I've seen most really? other Tom Cruise movies yeah. from, from that era. Just that, that, one, one, that, one, that one didn't have any Brat Packers in it. Of course, you're not going to be drawn to it. I love the Brett Pat movies, but yeah. yeah. Well, it had, to be fair, it had uh, Val Kilmer. I mean, he's a super hunk. Or was. Do you yeah. know the, the Val Kilmer film that I saw was a spoof called Top Secret. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And that was like a, it was set in like the Second World War or something. Um, and it was, it was, I don't know if it was made by like the, was it the Zanuck, David Zanuck, the, the, the guy who did the airplane movies? Uh, it was, it, I think it might have been directed by the same people that did uh, Airplane and Airplane Two. It was very, the humor was very similar. There's lots so of so here's of here's the Val Kilmer. Here's the Val Kilmer movie you need to see. Wonderland. Wonderland has Val Kilmer in a true story, a true crime drama, playing the role of American porn legend John Holmes when he was implicated and charged with a murder in LA. And uh, I know the person who was the key witness in this trial, who then had to go into the federal witness protection program after his testimony against LA's top drug kingpin. And do you still know them now? I do. That's, that's an admission. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're now you're so wow. That's that's so. So you knew them before and after the they've gone into uh, witness protection. No, I only knew them afterwards. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I was now they're currently being. No, I, not, I wouldn't suggest. I wouldn't suggest you were. I wouldn't yeah. suggest you were. That's 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 incredible. Right now, they're still currently under witness protection program. No, but that's a whole other story. That's like, a whole nother you story. couldn't go over to his house for dinner because he's under witness protection program, right? Well, I can now because that's a, do you want to hear it? I can explain it now or should we save it? I want to hear it. Yeah, right. go on. Let's, let's hear it. Okay. So the, the person that I'm speaking of is a man who was uh, first known to the world as Scott Thorson. Scott Thorson, do you know who Liberace was, Simon? Yeah. Okay. So Scott Thorson was one of Liberace's boyfriends and the most high profile because he's the one who ended up writing a tell-all biography about his life with Liberace that was later made into an HBO movie that starred Michael Douglas as Liberace and Matt Damon playing the part of my friend Scott Thorson. So really? after, yeah. I've never seen that yeah, one. Michael it, Douglas as Liberace? I remember yeah. that. Yeah, there it is. Well, that's behind the, the Ken Robert, There you go. Yeah, that's it. That's my friend Scott there on the right hand side next to Liberace. So, uh, yeah, that movie won a bunch of Golden Globes. You should check that movie out. It came out a few years ago. 
So my friend Scott, so after the breakup with Liberace, he uh, gets involved in drugs. He's in L.A. There is a drug kingpin in L.A. named Eddie Nash. Uh, everybody seen Boogie Nights? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the scene where they go to rob the drug dealer and that drug dealer is standing there, he's wearing the bathrobe and just the open chest and that, that guy's throwing those snap pops behind him and Night Ranger's sister Chris is like wearing playing. a Speedo, right? Yeah, wearing the Speedo and he's all like coked yeah. out and ranting and raving. That's Eddie Nash. That's who that person is is supposed to be. Hang on a second. Simon's staying quiet. You haven't seen Boogie Nights either, have you? I've seen Boogie Nights. Don't you worry oh, about that. I've yeah, seen that yeah. one. Oh, yeah. well, you're, so, hit miss. you're hit and miss. Sometimes there's like, oh, yeah, I've heard of Liberace. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of like Elton John. I'm all over the map, mate. I'm all like, over the map, yeah. He's seen right, yeah. Boogie Mornings, too, right? For the last two mornings? <laughs> <laughs> Only so, one this, this good goes. That worked on several different levels. Thank so, you. Um, so that was a real person, Eddie Nash. So Eddie Nash was the cocaine king of L.A. in the 70s, the early part of the 80s. So John Holmes, the American porn legend, was also a drug addict. So my friend Scott and John Holmes would frequently see each other because they were scoring drugs from this guy, Eddie Nash. John Holmes got in with some uh, fellow drug users, small-time criminals, and they decided they were going to rob Eddie Nash. And they did. You'll see this all played out in the Wonderland movie. They held him up. They took, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars he had in cash in his safe and all his drugs and all the rest of that. John Holmes was the guy who kind of set up the heist because he had access to Eddie Nash's house and he left the back door open so the criminals could get in. Uh, Eddie Nash is held at gunpoint. He's robbed of all of his drugs and cash. He then says in retaliation to his henchmen, go up there to Wonderland Avenue in L.A. That's why it was called the Wonderland Murders and kill everybody who's in that apartment where they all live. So his henchmen go up there. They bludgeon to death everybody in the apartment except for one person who they meant to kill. But that person actually lived after getting the hell beat out of them. My friend Scott. The reason he's a material witness in all this just happens to be at going to Eddie Nash's house to score his cocaine. When he knocks on the door, Eddie Nash answers the door, speedo, bathrobe, gun in his hand, sweating profusely, saying, I've just been robbed. Come in and sit down. Uh, We're going to be a minute before we sort out your drug deal. He's in the living room and he sees John Holmes and the henchman come into the house covered in blood head to toe with lead pipes that they used as murder weapons. And they say right in front of Scott, we went up there, we killed everybody, we bashed their heads in, nobody else is alive. So the cops later on come around, Scott doesn't go to the cops or anything because he's at this point a criminal himself uh, with the drugs and all. But later on, the cops come to my friend Scott. The lead detective that came to him was a guy who would later be known as the lead detective on the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, but that guy at the time, Tom uh, Van Adder. No, no. 
the lead detectives in the uh, in the O.J. Simpson trial were uh, uh, Tom Van Adder and uh, what was the other dude's name? There was another guy's name, but Van Adder was the guy who came to Scott, mm. and he said, "We under we've had this we've had you under surveillance. We know you get your drugs from Eddie Nash. We're, we're going to send you to prison on some drug dealing unless you tell us what you know about Eddie Nash and those murders." So Scott gave them the testimony that implicated Eddie Nash. They bring him into the courtroom. He testifies against Eddie Nash and is immediately rushed out of the courtroom and put into the witness protection program. Now, here's why he gets out of the witness protection program. He's in the witness protection program for a few oh, years. Un yeah. Is this credited to Whitey? Yes. Oh, yeah, you've kind of to I've told part of this. story. I'm gluing things together. I think you've mentioned something. All right, this is great. It, it, it's, it's a crazy long story. So he's in the witness protection program for a few years under the name Jess Marlowe. Now, most people would want to stay in the witness protection program because now they've got America's one of America's biggest drug dealers trying to kill him out for revenge. Uh, but he misses the, the limelight. He enjoyed being Liberace's boyfriend and, you know, being at all the Hollywood parties. And now he's anonymous Jess Marlowe and he doesn't get to do any of that anymore. So he voluntarily emerges from the, he quits the witness protection program so he can go back to Hollywood and resume trying to be an actor. So he makes it as far as like central Florida on his way back to LA, right? But he's now, he's now out, uh, out of the program. He's staying at a Howard Johnson's motel on his way back to L.A. He gets a knock at the door. He opens the door. There stands one of Eddie Nash's henchmen who shoots him five times and leaves him for dead. Scott crawls over to the phone, calls the desk clerk, says, I've been shot five times. I need help. And they, hang up, <laughs> they hang up on him because they think it's a prank. Quick aside, he then later sues Howard Johnson and gets like a quarter of a million dollars because they, did, they didn't call 911. But he survives this. He happens to get shot in a part of Florida where they have so many shootings. They also have like the number one trauma unit. So they get him to the hospital. He's in a coma for like a month and a half, but he actually lives through this. All right. So now... He's out of the uh, he's out of the ICU, out of his coma. He still wants to go back to L.A., but he's got a drug dealer who's going to try to kill him again. And he knows this time the guy probably won't miss. So and this is for Simon's benefit, because I think I've told this part of the story before on the show. Scott remembers that years back when Liberace, when he and Liberace were together, Liberace would play a uh, place in uh, Boston that was mob owned. It was, it was owned by these, uh, these uh, brothers. And uh, uh, they loved Liberace. And uh, when they would play the theater, this particular gangster had a daughter who was like uh, special needs, right? Like, I don't know if it was like severe um, uh, autism or, you know, what, but very severely handicapped. Didn't speak, hardly ever smiled. Liberace invited her, Scott said uh, to this gangster, Jerry Angelo was the guy's name. 
Scott said to this gangster, hey, would it be okay if I took your little girl up on the stage and set her next to Liberace uh, during the show and he'll play a song? And he said, okay, the little, takes the little girl up there. He sits her on the piano bench. Liberace does the bit like you do with the kids. He's like, hey, just play this one key, right? And then Liberace plays chopsticks or something like that. So now they're doing a duet together. And the little girl smiles. And this gangster, Jerry Angelo, bursts into tears. This hardened gangster. And he says, I've never seen my little girl smile before. He looks at Scott and he says, if you ever need a favor in that mafia way, if you ever need a favor, I am now beholden to you. I will grant you a favor. So Scott, years later, after all this has happened in the witness protection program and the drugs and the, the print, all that, years have passed. He remembers. He wants to go back to L.A. He knows this drug dealer is going to try to kill him, but he remembers Jerry Angulo told me he would owe me a favor. So he contacts Jerry Angulo and he asks to speak to him. Now, as a rule, gangsters don't like to talk to people who have been in the witness protection program because they're rats. But he remembers this. So he says, all right, I will uh, meet with you. Scott flies to Boston to meet with him. They sit down at the whatever the front business, the pizza parlor or something they operate out of the back of. Like it's totally straight out of the Sopranos. He sits down with him and uh, Scott says, I'm in some trouble. I don't know if you remember when Liberace played the concert, your little girl and Jerry Angelo says, yes, I remember I told you, you know, I was indebted to you. And Scott says, well, you know, I've testified against this drug dealer, Eddie Nash. I want to go back to L.A. I want to be able to live without being threatened, but I know he's going to try to kill me. So Jerry Angelo looks to his right, and there sits Whitey Bulger, who is like his henchman at the time. And he says, I want you to take Scott here and, you know, one or Lefty and Guido or whoever the other two guys are. I want you to take them and go to L.A. You know what to do. They go straight to the airport. They get on a plane. They fly from Boston to L.A., they get in a rental car, and they're driving, and nobody's saying a word. And Scott's just sitting there. Scott has told me this. This is all firsthand accounts. Scott's told me this whole story. And um, they get to Eddie Nash's house, and Whitey says, you wait here. And he uh, goes in with one of his other henchmen, and uh, somebody stays in the car with Scott. They're Can in I there stop for 10 for minutes. Or yeah. I just wanted to ask Simon. Simon, are you familiar with Whitey Bulger? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. he's tied in with Dana, and then there's been a few movies. So just make sure. Yeah. 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 So I'm now, so now they go in the house. They're in there for about ten minutes. They come out. They get in the car. No one's saying anything. They're driving straight back to LAX. They're just going to get on a plane. They're going to fly right back to Boston. And Scott, being Scott. Uh, could not stop. He could not stop himself from asking, "Hey, what happened in there?" And Whitey Bulger turns around, looks at Scott, and he says, "I told him if anything ever happens to you, we're going to murder him and all of his children." And Scott was able to go back to L.A. and live without out in the open as Scott Thorson, without ever being threatened by Eddie Nash because of that. Um. And then um, uh, all those years later, he told that story and I uh, actually wrote that as the uh, treatment for his uh, book. But he's um, 
he is a really bizarre character, this guy. He is like, I always explain to people, he's like the Forrest Gump of, of like, CD under, underworld. Like, he has been involved in more shady shit, and he doesn't, hurt, he doesn't hurt anybody. Scott doesn't hurt anybody, but he'll always be in the wrong place at the wrong time when someone else does. That's the weird thing uh, about Scott. Other stories to tell about him, but I took too long to tell that one. So there you go. See, that's, more than you bargained for. That's incredible. That is incredible. It's a great, great, great telling of the story as well. Thank it's, you. Well, I, you know what? One of these days, I will get him on our Triple G show. Uh, we got to wait for him to get out of prison again because he's he's gotten into a little more trouble. But I, I believe this time around, he should be out maybe within a year or so. So I'll get him on to tell this story. Here's another thing. If you if you don't know Whitey Bulger's story too well, he was arrested about 10 years ago when they found him in Santa Monica. And apparently in Santa Monica is a suburb of L.A. So Boston's the complete East Coast, West Coast. That's where he was hiding. And I think I've been in L.A. a total of 20 years. So I imagine some of him being in Santa Monica paralleled Richard's friend maybe being back in the L.A. scene or whatever. But them driving out from Boston was obviously prior to Whitey Bulger then turning on that mob and yeah. having to hide out in L.A. So, yeah, this is a, you know, if you kind of connect the dots knowing some stories here, that's that deal. Dana White was a boxing instructor probably around 98-ish or so, it sounds like to me, 99. Um, and then he comes out around that time because he gets threatened by Whitey Bulger's henchman Guido and Lefty. And um, he wanted nothing to do with that. So, you know, he resurfaces, becomes friends with – I think he happens to be at a wedding where the Fertitas are. And now he's available to kind of get something going and because he knows the Fertitta guys are, are boxing fans and Dana White used to do a little bit of boxing and teach a little bit of boxing. So that kind of, I guess you could say, ties into maybe the history of the UFC and that coming together. Because if Dana White doesn't get threatened, I don't know, maybe he has a franchise of 50 boxer sizes in the Boston area. Who knows? But it's funny how all these things happen for a reason. It's mad, isn't it? It's mad. I don't know how we follow a story like that. I think the best thing to do is to not follow a story like that. That is that is the perfect the perfect way to book it. This has been quite a roller coaster of a podcast. We've gone from title fights to Las Vegas eateries to the most incredible true crime story you're ever going to hear on a podcast. So, thank you to Mr. Richard Hunter for that incredible story. Thank you to Gorgeous George and to Goes. We will be back hopefully in a week or so with another episode of the Brit Pack United Nations. But enjoy the fights as they're coming up this weekend and maybe we'll speak to you again in a week's time. Mm-hmm.